Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship and chemical free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, on to the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I wanted to begin with an update on what I'm doing I am here in Albury, New South Wales, at the Gardens Medical Group. I have already seen a number of you uh, from a metabolic health and dietary point of view, which is fantastic, and we're already making some great progress. I wanted to share with you also some events that are coming up in the next couple months. On March 23rd, we are hosting with the Walkies a dinner at Yardbird Restaurant here in Albury. And that event will be a four-course uh, set menu of Walkie produce. And there'll be two talks. Jacob was speaking for half an hour on giving an idea of the virtual Walkie farm tour. And I will be talking for a similar time on the Australian Dietary Guidelines and how they might have and continue to be uh, letting you down. So that will be a great event. Um, tickets are on sale on the Walkie website and there's still uh, 30 or 40 available. So grab grab one of those and um, that will be an, an excellent night of very high quality food and uh, hopefully some good talks too. The next event, which I'm pretty excited to announce uh, for the first time here, 
is uh, what I'm calling an optimal fertility workshop. And this is going to be hosted on the Wolke Farm on April 15th. Now, this event is something that has been in the planning for a while, and it's filling a gap for people who want to optimize their health prior to uh, attempting or prior to conceiving uh, a baby. And it's hitting a range of or four main issues that I see as, as critical or fundamental to optimal health that people aren't uh, don't have good guidance or haven't had good um, information about. And so th- those four areas are metabolic health, specifically what to do to make yourself optimally metabolically healthy um, prior to, to conceiving. And we're going to talk about visceral fat. We're going to talk about um, the contributors to um, metabolic disease um, because this, this does have a very big impact on fertility, both both in men and, and women. The second topic is is going to be nutrition. And we're going to discuss what are the most nutrient-dense foods that you should be eating uh, prior to going into a pregnancy. And, and how can we best charge up that micronutrient power bank so that you have um, – an, an adequate store of, of nutrients to last you through uh, those nine months and to, to help grow that the healthiest baby and have the, the healthiest placenta and the smoothest pregnancy. The third topic will be toxins. And I'm really emphasizing uh, environmental uh, endocrine disrupting compounds and, uh, and other topic toxins that are disrupting hormonal health. And with the, the, the commonality or the, the prevalence of endometriosis, particularly, um, and, and disrupted menstrual cycles, I think this is going to be of value to people who um, are not exactly sure, but have a notion that their hormones are disrupted. Um, and optimal hormonal health and, and menstrual cycling is, is critical to um, in terms of preparation uh, for uh, the healthiest pregnancy. The fourth topic, uh, which will will round out the day, uh, is circadian health, and we're going to talk a little bit about how to optimize your circadian health uh, and, and get everything humming and improving your sleep quality. Uh, and we'll also talk uh, briefly at the beginning about the basics of fertility and pregnancy. Jake will also be running a, a farm tour in the morning for those who are interested. So. Tickets are going to go on sale very soon on the on the Walkie website, so check that out. And I will also be uh, posting links on on social media. Uh, the other events that are also happening May seven um, in Melbourne, I'll be talking at the Low Carb Roadshow uh, about uh, animal based diets. And finally, uh, it's at the end of the year, but we're very 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 excited to announce a Quantum Health Summit. Um, and this will be lectures on uh, what is this, is quantum health and basically an entire different perspective on, on health and medicine that prioritizes or emphasizes our light environment, um, water and magnetism uh, to basically tune our mitochondria, which are the energy producing organelles in our cells in the most optimal way and when we have 
mitochondria that are working properly, we have uh, uh, ideal health. So I'll be talking at that event alongside Dr. Jalal Khan, Dr. Pran Loganathan, and Jake Wolke. So that is going to be a very exciting event um, on November 4th. So again, you can find tickets. Uh, they've just gone on sale on the Wolke website. So that's a bit of an update about what's going on. And thank you again for for all your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Sean O'Mara. He is an absolutely fascinating uh, physician doing very, very exciting um, and important work. So uh, without any um, further from me, uh, please enjoy this episode. Thank you. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Regenerative Health Podcast. Tonight, I am extremely excited to be sitting down with Dr. Sean O'Mara. Now, Sean is at the forefront of human performance and metabolic health optimization, and he's had an incredibly diverse and rich career that has spanned law enforcement, uh, working as an, uh, a police officer, working as an emergency physician, and being the treating clinician to US heads of state. So, Sean, thank you so much for coming onto the thank podcast. You. Yeah, Max, great to be here. And thanks for the invitation and opportunity to come and speak to you and your audience. So can you share with us a bit about how you got to where you are now from what sounds like a very interesting starting point in your career? Sure. So I frequently think about, you know, that particular question, you know, the fortuity that I as a single human being could suddenly have the, the privilege and the opportunity to become so healthy and experience what what I call biological optimization is and how that got started. I think it's an interesting story and it and it is a bit fortuitous. I mean, I lived uh, pretty much like everybody else growing up and uh, I was uh, went on to um, uh, medical school and uh, as I became a conventionally trained emergency medicine physician, was bored out of my mind at the concept of anything that was preventive in nature in medical school and after medical school. So I singularly focused in on my specialty, which was emergency medicine. I uh, was was always interested in the the, the most challenging and acutest and greatest emergencies, gunshots, trauma, uh, aortic dissections, things that were, you know, immensely challenging in a very short period of time and would roll my eyes either visibly or uh, imaginatively in the back of my head at the concept of uh, preventing uh, pre preventive medicine or trying to get people more healthy. So, there, after practicing uh, medicine for about uh, 18 uh, years or so, I happened to meet a, a patient who came into, um, into my hospital, and he, he told me about uh, you know, losing weight. I was overweight at the time, and I was walking around drinking a gallon of skim milk with chocolate Hershey's um, powder in it, and that's I thought was healthy. And I'm trying to lose weight. And he mentioned to me, I asked him why, how he is so healthy. At the time, I thought he was like 24. He worked out in the hospital gym too. So um, I would see him in the hospital gym. And he mentioned at the time 
then that he was paleo and that I should go paleo. And I'd never heard what paleo was and I began reading about it. But uh, what was interesting to me at that time was I I just dot connected. I, I saw the the wisdom and the explanation and what I read about paleo is immediately um, a value. And I started doing it. And within, I think, two days of doing paleo, I'd written <laughs> only two days. I'd written my best friends from medical school and uh, and said that they should do it. And I was shocked when a my single email told told them to investigate paleo um, that they wouldn't do it, and uh, they read about it, but they they wouldn't do it. And I thought I thought that was fascinating. And then my my identical twin brother, who's closer uh, to being like me more than any other human being, he wouldn't do it. But not only would he not do it then, he wouldn't do it for the next five years. So uh, five years of me exhorting him, and he he wouldn't do this. So it's interesting that people humans process information differently, get to different conclusions. And it was um, fortuitous that I met that young man and also that I went ahead and processed that information. But the, the end result was at the time I was suffering numerous medical conditions. I, I clogged arteries, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. I was hypertensive. I had GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, so bad that I'd been diagnosed with Barrett's. And uh, by necessity, I had to to suffer through and endure a EGD, esophageal gastroduodenoscopy, where they stick a big uh, fiber optic scope down into my esophagus every three months. And I did that so much that I did it without uh, any anesthesia, so it would limit the impairment it it would provide to my lifestyle. And I had uh, kicked my legs. I had restless leg syndrome. I had... uh, obstructive sleep apnea. I had a benign prostatic hypertrophy so large and significant that I'd wake up four or five times a month. And uh, when I would would have to urinate, it would there was no sense that I was evacuating my, my urine. It was though a, a small hole had opened up and it was dribbling out. And it was just, if you're a male and if you're experiencing it, it's just incredibly uh, suffer, it just, you suffer through that. And, um, I also had, uh, erectile dysfunction. Uh, so numerous medical problems. And within one year, all of those problems had either gone completely away or they were, uh, substantially better. And I remember experiencing just anger at, uh, the fact that, uh, a single dietary change, eliminating processed foods and eating paleo could have such a profound effect on me. So I, at that time, formed an opinion that, um, or purpose that I was going to start researching this. I wasn't interested in research at all, but in the absence of my chosen profession, medicine, failing me of being able to come up solutions uh, to really adequately treat my medical conditions and, um, the fact that I had experienced such significant improvement, I decided that I have to research and figure out how and why that was possible. So I uh, ended up uh, joining a research practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, shortly after, you know, uh, being a part of, of that practice, I think after about a year or, or two, uh, we decided to apply for a grant from the National Science Foundation. We received 
funding to be able to um, research um, biomarkers that were associated with uh, effective elimination of chronic disease. And we uh, very uh, diligently pursued studying those biomarkers in human beings, uh, focusing on mostly visceral fat. And we scanned about 6,000 different patients studying them for visceral fat and, and the impact of eliminate elimination of visceral fat on humans. And the conclusion that we came to and that I um, continue to, to, to have now years down the road is that no single metric in the existence of humanity will improve somebody more and better than the elimination of visceral fat. Nothing. Nothing you could point a finger at, study, articulate as a measurement of humanity will improve people more. And so I like to opine about that and share about that particular marker, let people become aware of it, because it's generally woefully underappreciated by humans, and it's not taught in medical school to physicians, uh, nor is it taught in uh, health science classes and schools. And so I want to try to do my part as much as possible uh, to bring awareness of, of this because of the enormous impact it has on what I believe is the largest problem facing humanity today, which is chronic disease. So it's, it's really an important point of discussion and a subject that I am passionate about and, and uh, enjoy speaking about and bringing awareness to through podcasts. Fantastic. And, Fantastic. and uh, people are aware of, the, of obesity, that people are aware that people look unwell uh, and are overweight. But what specifically is visceral fat, if you were to explain it to someone? And why is it so significant? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a fairly short answer of it. Uh, it is a collection of fat tissue that resides deep within your abdomen. So because it resides deep in your abdomen and not, not elsewhere, so it's, it's not underneath your skin, you cannot see or, or appreciate how much visceral fat you have in you. Now, interestingly, um, I think our ancestors could detect uh, visceral fat because as we study visceral fat and its elimination, I became aware of changes that happen within uh, to the human body as visceral fat is removed. So people who have a lot of visceral fat, you can see that in their faces. They have a, an inflamed look to their face and, and it probably goes mostly to shape. Um, I can see it in people's faces, the shape of their faces if you look at the average 60-year-old man or woman and compare their face to when they were 16, probably the biggest change besides the quality of their skin is the shape of their face. And so um, I walk down shopping malls, which I'm not too fond of doing to begin with, but if I'm out in public and I'm passing people, I'm constantly calculating by their faces how much visceral fat they have uh, present and then the, the look goes from their face to their abdomen, and then I can usually see some degree of protuberance. So, visceral fat is really an inflammatory substance uh, type of fat that is 
uh, uh, significantly different from subcutaneous fat, which is just underneath your skin, of which most people are aware of. It's kind of pinch your pinch an inch of fat that's underneath your skin. It's the kind of thing that you you kind of you may have rolls of fat. You're aware of it, but you could have an immense amount of subcutaneous fat uh, fat max and a very small amount of visceral fat and uh, or none at all and be significantly you would be significantly more healthy than somebody who has a lot of visceral fat. So in my study. I see people um, just the opposite. I see people who have very little subcutaneous fat and end up having a lot of visceral fat. And so the, these are people that we call TOFIs, thin outside, fat inside, thin outside, fat inside, TOFIs. But what's interesting about these TOFIs <clears throat> is one, uh, they seem to gravitate towards me as clients. And I think it's because I end up self, by virtue of the questions I, I ask people when I work because I, I have so little time, I can't take care of everybody who wants to work with me. I end up self-selecting for these TOFIs because I ask for people and uh, look for people who are motivated, unusually uh, driven, so that I can um, study them better as opposed to the previous five years of studying thousands of people, all comers, I would study everybody that the average person, law enforcement, military, firefighters. And what I found in those people was they they just weren't um, as motivated and committed. So you'd study them and they'd be cheating. They, they wouldn't sprint. They wouldn't use a sauna. And so <clears throat> consequently, you just, you couldn't get as, as good a science from them. And then once we identified that there was a type of personality of people who would do these things and would get better, then you could, in a shorter period of time, uh, see uh, get better results in your study. So I call these people uh, the uh, alphas. They have kind of an alpha personality. And so we, we started studying alphas. And alphas, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, I think because they are harder uh, working, they're more driven. They tend to ascend to higher levels of authority. And uh, restless is the head that wears the crown. If you're running an organization or uh, you've, um, you're, you're on the top of uh, your, your particular tribe or clan, uh, you have more stress and stress tends to uh, accumulate visceral fat. So the majority of my clients who show up while well, they're driven and motivated, oftentimes they, they might look good on the outside. They have a large amount of visceral fat inside. And those who are TOFIs uh, with this visceral fat are at greater risk, which is kind of interesting. It's counterintuitive than people who are outwardly heavy. So even if you might even be, qual you know, uh, be obese, you know, with a large amount of subcutaneous fat, you are metabolically, physiologically healthier than an individual who has very little fat, but a lot of visceral fat inside. So visceral fat is a, is a really unusual uh, type of fat that's very harmful because of its inflammatory nature, that it secretes cytokines, adipokines, these active molecules that get released by visceral fat and travel throughout the body, causing destruction and harm to our tissues. So that's why it becomes uh, discernible 
uh, in your skin, uh, the face of your shape, literally the, the shape of your abdomen. You know, visceral fat is responsible for the weakening of the tissues, your abdominal musculature, which is interesting, uh, your muscles in your abdomen and really all over your body. But um, in, in particular, this is an important point for your audience to listen to. So I'll share it is the abdomen can no longer, the abdominal musculature and the fascia uh, can no longer do its job of containing the enteric tract. So what that means is the disease process that is besets an individual filled with visceral fat ends up influencing and harming those tissues and you get the proverbial dad bod. So your abdomen is protuberant and sticking out. And if you look at photographs um, from um, you know decades before, we didn't have dad bods walking around. And what's fascinating to me is I figured out as a researcher of visceral fat that that protuberant abdomen max exists even in the absence of visceral fat. So this happened to me and myself. I had a dad bod, this pooge, I called, it was like a cow's udder. If I laid down on my, my fours and gave my child, a who's now 14, a horsey ride, I would see what looked like, and if I look back between my, my shoulders towards my legs, what looked like a cow's udder hanging down. It was absolutely horrific. And I couldn't pull the cow's utter up. I mean, it was, it was hanging down like a bag and it couldn't make it disappear even if I wanted to. So that was a sad state of affairs. And it's really that inflammatory destructive nature of visceral fat that weakens those tissues. And even once visceral fat is removed, that harm is still present until you heal. Now I'm happy to report that I have recovered and my other clients recover from that as well as they uh, do um, the necessary lifestyle changes to to secure their health that that corrects and with it as all all your other muscle tissues and the harm that that it really is uh, besetting your body from the influence of visceral fat so yeah great question I think it's important for your audience to be aware not all not all uh, fat is uh, uh, bad not all fat is good uh, but there's some fat that's really destructive and and with regard to good fat, there's brown adipose tissue. We call it brown fat. So some fat is actually a you know significant benefit to you. And humans ought to be taught about fat from a, a more enlightened perspective so that they can begin to make, make changes and do the um, uh, what is necessary to help uh, secure uh, real, true optimizing health. Yeah. Thank you for such a comprehensive answer, Sean. And I think about it in a way of metabolic health, which is essentially a way of uh, illustrating the same concept. But if someone is metabolically unwell or they have poor metabolic health or metabolic syndrome, they're basically having a, a too much visceral fat. And the, the process or the disease that they're suffering from is downstream of the fact that they have this visceral fat accumulating and as you mentioned, causing problems with releasing high, highly inflammatory adipokines, highly inflammatory mediators that is making the body insulin resistant. 
So the the question is why, and you alluded to it briefly, why does visceral fat occur? And you mentioned stress and you mentioned refined foods. So if someone is, I guess, looking down, they're looking down at their dad bod, they've got this protuberance that you just described, and they're wondering where they're at age 40, how they've got to this point. What would you, I guess, point to the factors that contributed to the development of this visceral fat? Yeah, no, really, really, really good question. So um, before I get into that, I will share a the two characteristics about, about visceral fat um, in relationship to its existence, not so much its effect, but its existence that, ca- that parallels how much disease one is going to get. So I could, uh, Max, you're much younger than I am, but I could dump an enormous amount of visceral fat into your abdomen and there would be no effect for a period of time. It would be minimal effect, or I could do this to even a child. But the longer it stays in there, uh, the more harm it causes. So people tend to view, when I have discussions about visceral fat, that it's really the quantity of visceral fat that you have. But it's not only the quantity, but the length of of time for exposure to visceral fat. So you need to think about the influence of visceral fat from not just quantity of, of, uh, of visceral fat, but quantity or length of time. So that's an important thing. And so what that means is uh, people can slowly accumulate this and its effect and they're not aware of it. So throughout your lifetime, you, you end up getting exposed to bad, harmful food. And it's, and in my opinion, the single worst kind of food that you can eat. Uh, is uh, our processed foods. So you can eat carnivore, you can eat vegan, you can eat vegetarian, you can eat pescatarian. But if you are eating processed foods, you're going to cause an enormous amount of damage uh, that that accumulates in, in the form of visceral fat. So how we came, how I came to that awareness is, in our research practice, we studied the elimination of processed foods, and it, it, it had this dramatic um, positive benefit in the store of visceral fat, the amount of visceral fat people have. Uh, it would quickly abate. And in one particular individual, I remember, um, we could definitively say it was nothing else that eliminated visceral fat other than eliminate his elimination of processed foods because this guy was, I'll, I'll describe him as a bit of a curmudgeon. He, he was set in his ways. Uh, he was 68 years old. He was worth in excess of a hundred million dollars and no way could we get this guy to exercise. He just wasn't interested. And so uh, it was, it was a great um, bit of science that happened by mistake. Uh, I, I was a, I was enormously upset at him because I thought he was offending our ability uh, to study the impact of exercise with uh, eliminating processed foods and eating healthy. But point of fact was he made an enormous contribution in science because he eliminated the uh, co- the confounding effect that exercise has. So he didn't exercise. He just cut out processed foods. And then we did a series of MRI scans on him and uh, very, very quickly over the course of 35 weeks, uh, he eliminated the majority of his visceral fat. And it was visu- visually apparent to people who look at the, the, the a series of MRI scans. And, I, and I've, I've 
mentioned it and shared it on multiple podcasts and have it on my website for people that are, are particularly interested in it. But it's uh, the things that go to um, other contributions to visceral fat besides processed foods are <clears throat> stress. So I mentioned that al- uh, alphas tend to have a lot of stress if they're uh, ahead or top of things, or they're just incredibly competitive. They may have self-induced stress. So the role of cortisol and stress um, long-term uh, has this very harmful uh, effect on causing, in particular, uh, visceral fat. So biologically, uh, cortisol plays a role to help you in the acute situation. But I don't believe ancestrally it was ever intended um, or a part of our ancestral existence that we would endure uh, stress for a long period of time. If if we were in an area where there wasn't any animals to eat and we were suffering from the stress of uh, not eating, we would move, we would migrate, we were uh, nomadic in nature, we were hunter-gatherers intended to move around. Um, so we would uh, address that and, 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 and cure ourselves of stress. Or if we were in an area that was too hostile, I don't know, too many lions and too many tigers and too many bears or whatever, too many hostile other humans, we would migrate away from that to avoid that stress. Today, uh, we tend to have a, the accumulation of stress that goes undetected or is endured. And uh, it has this enormous problem uh, when we look at visceral fat and it's in the contributions uh, that, that increase visceral fat causes. So stress, processed foods. The third one is alcohol. So individuals who drink a lot of alcohol end up accumulating a lot of visceral fat. And so uh, one of my strategies is to get people to um, either dramatically cut back on alcohol. And in in most cases, um, in virtually every case, I tell my clients that I work with that they would be better off not drinking anything. And uh, quite a few of them have mentioned to me uh, the benefits of uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast on alcohol, where he, where he and I agree very articulately and persuasively makes a case about the harm that comes from drinking alcohol. So um, if you're listening and you are somebody who wants a little bit of push to get uh, past alcohol and not drinking, I recommend uh, Dr. Uh, Huberman's uh, excellent podcast on um, alcohol. The uh, fourth one um, is uh, chronic disease. So if you are, I'm sorry, not chronic disease, but chronic exercise. If you're somebody who does a lot of exercising, particularly in the durational realm. So uh, to distinguish somebody who exercises in a very short um, you know, maximally intensive uh, kind of nature of exercise. But if you're a distance runner, a marathoner, uh, ultra marathoner, then we would see, uh, and from studying a, um, a large amount of visceral fat, and I would characterize it this way. It, it really was kind of a, um, uh, a, a governance that would, would make the elimination of visceral fat refractory. So if I could get somebody to stop eating processed foods, eliminate stress, stop drinking alcohol, and do other things to improve their health, if they continued to run, uh, doing distance running, 
the elimination of that visceral fat became much more difficult and the visceral fat was more enduring. So I recommend to clients to not do any distance running. I know this is going to offend a lot of people in your audience who are distance runners. I will confess that I am a former distance runner. I used to run 90, 75 to 90 minutes every single day. You couldn't keep me from doing it. I enjoyed the endorphins. Uh, it was it was clearly, uh, though at the time I wouldn't admit to it, it was looking back now in a clear uh, addiction in the same way that any other durational form of exercise can become addictive. This includes uh, cross-country skiing or cycling. Uh, that's not to say that these things don't have any benefit. They, I think they, they, they do have a positive contribution, but in the aggregate, when this is embraced on um, too, too much of a frequent basis, then it, cause harm, it causes probably more harm uh, than benefits. And I see much better results in clients who simply uh, convert from distance running to short, intense sprinting. You get more, you know, the production, dramatic production of muscle and the elimination of visceral fat that just doesn't happen when you are a jogger or a cyclist. So I offer that to your audience to, to consider uh, doing. And the other thing I point out, besides the the uh, effect on visceral fat that chronic exercise, uh, durational exercise has, is just objectively think about the appearance of a uh, master ultra marathoner. They have an emaciated, atrophied, uh, scrawny body. And I'm not trying to be critical of them. I'm simply trying to be scientifically objective. They have accelerated the loss of muscle tissue, muscle mass. This is atrophy. And it's really the one of the largest scourge in, in facing humanity today, sarcopenia. So you are going to battle chronic disease in many fronts, but one of the biggest and most insidious of all um, is, and it may not kill you um, at, as, as quickly and decisively as, say, a heart attack, but it is nonetheless significantly impairing to your quality of life and could lead you to simply be unable to care for yourself. You can't get up and out of a chair you are confined to a wheelchair or a hospital bed because of sarcopenia's um, destructive and insidious uh, influence on your your existence, where you you lose the capacity to to do um, what what you formerly did. So, you know, challenge yourself if you are a distance runner today uh, to look at those photographs of those those master athletes. And I, I see these ultra marathoners in their twenties and they have very kind of beautiful, you know, strides and they're super efficient, but they're already emaciated in their twenties. And, and I'm like, I, I, I'm appalled that this is not getting greater attention. So chronic exercise. And then the, um, the fifth one is uh, to be aware of is poor sleep. So, you know, Dr. David Sinclair does, I think, a great job advocating for sleep awareness and the science behind it and he's and its role in, in health. And also he studies longevity and health span, lots of areas that uh, uh, that I share an interest with uh, Dr. Sinclair. 
But uh, if um, if you are not sleeping uh, appropriately and you have sub uh, suboptimal sleep, then you will never achieve the level of health uh, that you should otherwise be achieving. And so we would see in individuals with sleep disorders or um, oftentimes it it may be kind of a lifestyle thing. Uh, a, 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 a key, they're they're stressed out and they're they're not sleeping at night, or they got a new new child, a new baby, uh, uh, different things, a new job that's keeping them up, and things like like that. The, the, it has a, a a very harmful effect on your health, in particular by uh, causing uh, increase in visceral fat. So sleep mm. apnea, uh, untreated, uh, contributes to visceral fat. So many things, uh, you know, the visceral fat could be a, a far better biomarker for the treatment of so um, eff- eff- efficacious a treatment uh, treatment of so many medical conditions. It's just it's just so uh, disillusioning that more physicians aren't aware of it uh, to to help guide their, their therapeutic interventions to help people and uh, really improve the course of humanity. It's just um, mind boggling to me that it's, it's not taught in medical school and equal to the uh, egregious nature of not teaching uh, physicians about visceral fat in light of its, its destructive contributions to, to your health and even life-threatening pathology like heart attacks and strokes and cancer is the fact that it's not taught to radiologists who stare at it uh, every day uh, and and never report it. So you have um, what I must liken to, uh, I mean, there are are cancers I would rather have than visceral fat. Uh, And so you have uh, in these abdominal readings of CTs and MRIs, not one word or mention of vis- visceral fat. And so you can have a, a CT of your abdomen uh, five, 10 years earlier. It's filled with visceral fat. Five, 10 years later, you uh, have a heart attack. And I, I just uh, find this just so troubling that this is ignored. It's like uh, you know a polyp within the abdomen is ignored and it's precancerous. And, it, and it's allowed to exist. Um, visceral fat, not only, um, you know, that polyp might cause cancer, but it, you know, it's not going to have a contribution to arthritis, uh, to have, you know, prosthetic hypertrophy, uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, degenerative disc disease, all the, I never saw a single form of chronic disease that didn't either go completely away or didn't get better substantially uh, with the removal of, of visceral fat. It's just, it, it is, it is just that important and we're ignoring it. So I really like to highlight uh, just the, the, the depths of, uh, of, uh, of problems that we have in our current system uh, with a woeful uh, misappreciation uh, and a lack of leveraging, exploiting, addressing this huge problem. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it goes into the, the next question about how do we identify visceral fat? And yeah. what I think of when I see someone, especially if they've got weight around the abdomen, is the most basic to the 
most complicated ways to identify this high risk fat tissue. So you've talked a, a lot about MRI and, and MRI scanning is obviously going to be the gold standard for visualizing visceral fat. But say you have someone who's just showed up to your your clinic room and before you've even put them in the, the, the MRI scanner, you've looked at their face, their nose is perhaps a little bit wider, their face is puffy, they look insulin resistant, they look metabolically unwell. Um, I, I think waist circumference and, and waist to height ratio is a, is a great starting point. Um, what, what other kind of blood blood tests or other indicators of, of metabolic disease do you like to look at? Well, it's, it's interesting. Prior to my, uh, my research practice and even finding out about dietary strategies and the story about paleo, I ran a concierge medical practice. So you mentioned I formerly took, took care of uh, U.S. heads of state. So um, military physicians take care of the president. And so um, they're, they're the only uh, physicians that by law, if they, well, we can use other, other physicians can, but we, we serve a formal role as physicians to, to the president. So um, I, I cared for President Clinton, President Bush, and, uh, and then uh, Vice President Cheney, Secretaries of State. So I had a lot of experience uh, providing executive care. And I, after I left the military for a short period of time, I, I had a separation of military service. I'm still in the military to, as, to this day, actually. Uh, but I returned in military. But uh, when I left for the first time, I, I set up a concierge medical practice. I, I was taking care of 52 uh, ultra high net worth individuals, billionaires, and I could run any lab tests and blood study. And I ran gobs and gobs of blood studies. But what I ultimately found is all of that waned in comparison to my experience using a single test, an MRI, uh, to show individuals visceral fat and um, and then what, what, what are also apparent to the discerning eye, uh, uh, atrophy of the muscles. And so if it's almost like uh, we need to revisit and relearn entirely uh, medical imagery to not, uh, not be looking for disease that we treat, but really to look at it f- from the perspective of how you can use what's available and discernible inside those MRIs to educate people on how they can live better and need to live better. So the, the capacity for quantifying visceral fat and by any other means, such as maybe a DEXA scan or bioimpedance scale, um, you pale in comparison to allowing a patient to gaze upon the uh, evil internal enemy that's inside of them and allowing them to process it uh, visually. And I think it's just fascinating to me. Um, people really need to grasp and see it. If I gave you a number of how much your visceral fat was in ounces or pounds or kilograms or whatever uh, measure, unit of measure, it just doesn't engage the human mind to action as much as visually processing that visceral fat. So, um that is the limitation, I think, of laboratory studies that when uh, they're they're just reported numbers. And then the patient is reliant upon uh, a third party, a physician to interpret that. And if you want to act, you need to see visually process what is wrong and what is good so that you can best change your life. And so the, the ability to 
do an MRI offers a patient the ability to interpret that MRI themselves uh, in a far more meaningful way. So I think it really is important uh, to do an MRI, or you can also see it by CT. But we, I'm, I, I pay a lot of attention to how we lived ancestrally, and I think it's 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 of uh, extreme importance to be aware that humans always improved throughout the course of our existence, roughly probably about 4 million years uh, in the absence of modern day medicine, laboratory studies, and MRIs. So how is it that humans improved and now with all this technology, we don't? Well, it's probably in the aggregate because we pay attention to things to treat instead of getting better. Ancestrally, we would have detected change in us that either affirmed that we are living correctly or that we we need to make a course adjustment that something is wrong. So, for example, uh, the medicine man or medicine woman in our tribe or the elders, people who uh, have accumulated uh, the traditions of eating properly, may have detected within um, ourselves that we had started to have a protuberant abdomen or um, that our, our shape of our face was, was changing. And they would have said, you are eating too many dates. You are eating too many figs, something along those lines. And we would have made a course correction and an adjustment. Or, you know, you need to sleep more uh, or you need to... Um, you know, do do these things. You need to do more sprinting. We notice you're not coming out and hunting with us. You're staying back and you're a campfire dweller. You're hanging out at the campfire rather than going out and doing work. So all I have all these kind of analogies that I like to point out to people. But uh, the, the, the point uh, of all that is to say that humans acquired a, a collection of, uh, of insights about manifestations in, in terms of how we looked and also how we performed that would have guided our lifestyles. And today it's all been replaced by laboratory studies, mostly in one, cholesterol. So you could be falling apart in your entire life. You could have an encounter with a physician who will say that, you know, your, your cholesterol is fantastic. You don't need anything. And you are falsely led to believe that there's no need to change your life as long as that cholesterol is low, low, or just the opposite. You could you could look like a million bucks. You could be performing um, your lifestyle and living your life and uh, significantly better than other human beings. Your cholesterol could be uh, elevated, and your physician will become unglued from the tremendous um, detrimental effect that they seem to feel that elevated cholesterol is. So um, to answer your questions long-winded <laughs> is um, I'm not much for laboratory studies today. Um, I, I concentrate on things that go through the human senses that allow for visual processing of, uh, of how, uh, what, what our state or physiology is. And so uh, what I do think, though, I mean, to, to your question is, since we didn't have MRIs for 4 million years, I don't really, I know that they're not necessary, but right now they're the best thing I can think of to show people uh, the influence of visceral fat. And then to, uh, for them to slowly learn, and I spent a lot of time uh, sharing with my clients what I call 
um, key biological indicators, KBIs, I call them for short. <clears throat> and these are the manifestations of visceral fat, such as in the face, uh, the shape and contour of the abdomen and body and musculature. And then uh, the appearance of the skin, your skin turgor, um, and the existence of, uh, of telangiectasias, um, also known uh, by the common person as spider veins. So these little purplish blue uh, veins um, start manifesting in the skin. And so a child um, can, be, can go through an MRI scan and they'll have visceral fat, but the more visceral fat they have and the longer they have, eventually they'll start to develop uh, spider veins and all these other manifestations. And you can, you can show them to them and um, to, to clients and they can, <clears throat> they'll be reversed as visceral fat <clears throat> is eliminated from the human body. So uh, spider veins and these other manifestations, nail beds, the appearance of uh, modeling or purpling to the fingernails and toenails, <clears throat> the ch how, how your nail beds look, how your fingernails look, how your hair looks, is your hair thinning? <clears throat> All of these are manifestations of visceral fat. Yeah, um, and yeah. that goes to the point that uh, I think, Sean, you're not well known for, which is appearance and performance is the best marker of of how well someone's doing or not. And are they do they appear well or do they appear? Uh, do they have all these features that, that that Sean's just mentioned? And how are they performing? Are they able to run a uh, hundred meters in you know under fifteen seconds, or are they having difficulty getting up from a chair? So uh, I really like that very holistic, practical, real world mental model of of health that isn't, I guess. Uh, maybe blinkered and, and, and focus only on, on lab tests or only on, on I guess, artificial paradigms of, or proxies of health. This is very, very objective and very, very um, quantifiable. Um, it makes me think, just describing everything that you have, it makes me think what percentage of people today um, are truly healthy as per those those um, criteria? criteria. and you know, what percentage of, of our ancestral humans would have been healthy by those criteria? And I, I mean, I, I can't think that maybe less than 1% of, of people walking around today are uh, at the level that their ancestors would have been or that we, we kind of evolved. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a really uh, <clears throat> good uh, distinction, good point. I think it's uh, <clears throat> probably even less than 1%. Um, really are uh, really healthy. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I think a lot of your audience probably is, this, well, I perform pretty well, but their capacity for measuring that performance and, and being aware of just how healthy they really are, um, oftentimes is colored by their own perspective. So for instance, your average gym rat will evaluate their performance in the realm of how much weight they can lift but not whether they could climb a tree or jump through a window. So a good example of this is I was appalled at looking at the, the character on the internet, Liver King. He was interesting. I would follow in him. But I remember seeing him once jumping up on a rock, trying to crawl across a rock in uh, a Central Park in New York City. And I thought he looked horrific. And so... People aren't aware, you know, they tend to look at 
uh, somebody just from the perspective of, uh, you know, how much weight they can lift. But whether you can climb a rope, climb a tree, climb a, uh, a rock, um, you know, all, how fast you can sprint, how many pull-ups you can do, all these other things, uh, whether you could do gym rings and whatnot, those, the diversity and uh, the, the variety of different um, functions that you can perform really are best defined as how well you're living. And so we become really poor at evaluating our quality of life uh, how how well we're doing things. We tend to be myopic looking at one thing. And so as a consequence of that, I think that uh, that 1% or less uh, of uh, our population uh, today being really healthy uh, is, is, a con- is, is a product of that. And so, uh, and then they look at appearance like, I mean, I'll just pause it. If you're a gym rat and you are working to get the biggest muscles that you can possibly get, um, it's to me a potential source of body dysmorphism where you are looking at this particular marker and that becomes your objective. And it's, it's on the spectrum of uh, anorexic who uh, thinks that being incredibly lean and thin and uh, maybe emaciated in appearance is the objective that they, they want to get, get, become more skinny and they're, they're terrified of uh, fat or something. And so what you really want to be is somebody who's not only incredibly functional, but also has um, a, a healthy appearance. So more like the character Tarzan. So Tarzan kind of a svelte, well-defined uh, musculature and um, a, a healthy amount of musculature, but not too much. So kind of like the golden Goldilocks, you know. Brad Pitt and Flat Not too much. Yeah, just right in the middle is yeah. what you really yeah. want to be. And we need to investigate and learn uh, about what what health is from that perspective. Yeah, and, and the question yeah. I think a lot of listeners are now wanting to have an answer to is how does Sean treat or remove this visceral fat in patients who are interested yeah, and willing to make lifestyle changes? Yeah, so um, – First, I'll say for anybody who has been listening and is having that question, which I think Max is correct about, that I put a lot of my uh, strategies onto my Instagram, uh, which is at uh, D-R-S-E-A-N-O-M-A-R-A, at Dr. Sean O'Mara. And I'm also on Twitter and put out a lot of content on Twitter. And I'm on YouTube and create a lot of content in the form of uh, videos that I discuss these points. Uh, but there, there are a variety of things. And I, of course, have mentioned processed foods. So the elimination of processed foods, the elimination of alcohol, uh, the elimination of stress, the optimization of, um, of sleep, improving your, your sleep uh, as much as possible, and then eliminating, you know, chronic exercise and, uh, uh, supplementing, uh, substituting in for chronic exercise, maximally intensive exercise. So um, that the latter one is really an example of a stress hormetic. So when we exercise in a manner that um, that hurts us but does not kill us, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. 
is is really an important uh, leverageable uh, uh, form of optimizing your health that that I use, and it leads me to uh, some uh, other additional strategies that are of a stress hermetic nature, such as the use of a dry finish sauna as opposed to a infrared sauna. I prefer dry finish saunas uh, because I think the infrared 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 um, saunas. Uh, create an energy, an ionizing energy form uh, uh, in the form of infrared, which we would have been exposed to rev- evolutionary, uh, ad- adapted to f- over four million years from the sun, but not from a machine that significantly amplifies and increases the length of those infrared rays, so they penetrate too much. So I, I say that to to offer to your audience the guiding principle that I look to nature as the single most ingenious uh, form of influence for optimizing um, not only humans, but all species. And we ought to be paying attention to that. And the, um, the, the uh, fallacious uh, attempt by humans to think that we could ever recreate the sun and create and provide uh, uh, some form of, uh, of uh, benefit without harm is, is I think, uh, well made in in the form of infrared lamps. So these infrared lamps cook meat uh, and food and restaurants are underneath it. And I'm like, I think it's crazy that humans are exposing themselves to that deep penetrating rays that go into tissues that have no biological adaptation. But saunas are an example of a hermetic practice, um, particularly when it's done correctly, such as dry finish, you know, heat where you're exposed to just heat as opposed to some other form of energy, uh, then they're beneficial. And then the a corollary, uh, t- counter corollary, uh, hermetic is uh, cold immersion. And then <clears throat> exposure to uh, sunshine. Um, so uh, one of my favorite molecules in the body, it's the subject of a, of a, a Nobel Prize, is the discovery of nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is something that I think um, people need to be aware of, and visually, it's it manifests uh, in your your body. Well, I'll say it manifests in your body through four things: you know, stress, uh, stress hermetic activities like from uh, sprinting. Um, high levels of nitric oxide will be released, and from uh, going into a sauna. So, when you go into a sauna, you'll increase your nitric oxide. When you uh, go outside into the sunshine. Nitric oxide is uh, uh, released and enhanced, and the and then the fourth big one that I see is from fasting. So when you do um, particularly extended fasting, you see that. Now, what's interesting about nitric oxide, and I'll point this out to your audience if you're listening, is from the elimination of visceral fat, we saw atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease manifested in the cerebral vasculature of the brain, meaning the arteries of the brain were diseased and clogged. When visceral fat was removed, those arteries opened up. After opening up those arteries, we saw a very profound and incredibly important physical uh, change in humans in the form of the uh, emer- emergence of visible pulses. So what happened was as those arteries opened up, uh, the adult subjects in our studies, and we're almost always adults, uh, acquired uh, visible pulsations at their arterial sites. 
So all over my body, uh, my arteries now are visible and my clients that have been with me long enough to get rid of their visceral fat and open up their arteries, uh, their, their arterial pulse sites become visible too. Now, why that's important is you can see the performance, physical performance of blood coursing through those arteries as a manifestation of nice, healthy, soft arteries, as opposed to um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease where those arteries are hard. Uh, and I think it's mostly from the contribution of um, inflammatory fatty infiltrates within the smooth muscle that line uh, and are actually the largest part of the anatomy of vasculature is the smooth muscle. And so as visceral fat, the contributions of visceral fat and uh, what causes visceral fat and visceral fat itself, we see the manifestations of these fatty infiltrates in skeletal muscle, arms and legs and, and other skeletal muscles that hang within the body. You could see this fatty deposition on MRIs and I call it human marbling. And I think it's also present in smooth muscles. So when these visible pulses start showing up, it is, in my opinion, and we need to study it more, likely um, uh, a consequence of eliminating the fatty deposition with those smooth muscles. And then now you see visible pulses. Now, why is that ideal besides the fact that you, you have healthier vessels and better blood flow? But they become this super cool gauge, Max. It's like I can go out. I get to go out into the sunshine, look at my pulses, just start going. Instead of going like this, they go much more significantly, okay? The majority of humans, they go out into the sunshine. They never see that experience of those those are the amplitude and magnitude of the effect of this of uh, of uh, nitric oxide on those arteries because they are so diseased. So, you know, I challenge your your audience to to be excited at the ability to have the extra value of having visible pulsation showing that blood flow is significantly better and also to help guide your lifestyle. So when I go out in the sunshine and I see my arteries going crazy, I think about all of those idiotic statements from these dermatologists that have us terrified of being out into the sun of which we have been exposed to for 4 million years and its existence predated humans for a long period of time and having us put on gobs of chemicals to suppress to suppress the influence of that sunshine, which means that we don't get that, that nitric oxide production. So it's uh, one of my most valuable um, features to my body that I'm, I'm passionate about and I appreciate so much are these visible pulses. And, uh, and so um, these visible pulse, pulses really uh, show much better blood flow. And it's, it's through that that you get significantly you know, better physiological performance and it's how I correct, um, should be obvious to the audience, how erectile dysfunction is corrected through the improvement of uh, better increased uh, perfusion. So visible pulse is one of those cool things I love to talk about. Yeah, no, and, yeah. and that's such a fascinating point. And I don't think anyone, so few people have actually consciously even seen or thought about looking at their pulses. And um, 
Yeah, it, it's. I, I looked at mine after I watched one of your videos, and um, yeah, I can. If I fasted, particularly uh, after a long fast, they become much much more visible. Um, and as you said, in the sunlight or, or after intense, vigorous exercise, the, the point you made about the intramuscular fat is another very interesting point. And that's something that we'll, you'll see, as, as you mentioned, Sean, on MRI. How does that inform your dietary choice? I mean, um, in terms of eating meat, are you, do you particularly avoid feedlot or grain-fed beef and do you prefer like a, a leaner or a, like a wild-caught venison, say, um, in terms of um, your protein source? Yeah, so I have not been able to um, um, concentrate enough on grass-fed beef for its impact on myosteatosis, which is the medical term for fatty infiltration of the skeletal muscle that we can see by MRI. But I will say that I do eat uh, grass-fed beef and not just grass-fed beef, but grass-finished beef, animals, uh, ruminants, uh, red meat that have been fed uh, a a more ancestrally consistent diet, which would not include carbohydrates uh, like greens and other things, uh, antibiotics and craziness that they give um, animals in the uh, conventional uh, beef industry. Uh, so you really want to concentrate on trying to. Our ancestors would have selectively hunted uh, to get the single best uh, animal in the herd because of its uh, capacity for conferring greater nu- nutritional value, but not only that, but greater biological value in terms of the microbiome, which is something we never talked about, that will be vastly superior on the animal that's healthier uh, is it's vastly superior on the human that is healthier. And so the skin within and fur uh, on that on that animal that's healthier would have had all the, all the stored microbiome um, perfectly stored on that animal. And then a, a confer, a conference to us when we, we, we hunted that. So one interesting manifestation of eating grass-fed beef that I will share with you is, and particularly uh, grass-fed beef that has fat that's really yellow, really golden yellow. So uh, evidencing higher amounts of carotenoids, um, these interesting um, um, vitamin A molecules and nutrients um, that are stored within the fat be, um, are more uh, abundant in an animal that is that is not fed grains and not fed these other things and fed exclusively really healthy grass is I have noticed I'm one of the, I, I have scoured the internet and it's, I don't see this being reported elsewhere. Um, I have noticed that I, my urine turns a distinct green color. Now it's not a Kelly green, but it's a light green. And I would say it is way more green than it is yellow. Uh, and that happens when I eat grass fed, pure, really good grass fed beef. Now on occasion, um, I might uh, go with um, somebody, uh, with a with a client or with a, a family member or a friend, to an all-you-can-eat churrascaria uh, steak restaurant. And if I eat a bunch of uh, conventional beef, uh, or if I have to travel, sometimes I go into the military and I can't get grass-fed beef. Uh, I have to eat conventional beef because it's it's better to eat that than a than uh, pizza. <laughs> so <laughs> I will, I will 
eat, eat conventional beef. My, my beautiful, and I say beautiful because it's a very attractive look to it, uh, green urine uh, goes away and is replaced by the dingy, gross, disgusting yellow look that I see in the urine specimen cups around the hospital and drug testing days in the military where all the soldiers are walking around their pl- plastic vials of urine. Uh, they're d- distinctly yellow, but mine's green. And it's a really cool thing, and nobody else is, uh, had, you know, uh, has that. But yeah, if uh, the audience is listening today, I will hold that out to you as yet another man, interesting manifestation. Um, and I think it goes to a couple things. One, it may be uh, the well, for, for for sure, I think it's an increased nutritional value of that kind of meat. But I could give that beef to other people. My kids don't have this yet. My other family members who eat the same food that I do don't have this yet. And I think it's because um, uh, of the capacity to absorb um, and your microbiome's role in that is is different within me than than others. So you could you could take that same grass fed beef, put it into somebody else, and they won't make green urine. And it probably goes to their epithelial cells' capacity for absorbing within their uh, those nutrients within the gastrointestinal system, and also the microbiome present within the gastrointestinal system to help with metaboli- metabolizing, digesting those nutrients into a type of form that are absorbed. So, um, I I've noticed too that the length of time of uh, the changes in my urine, such as if I eat a form of UC, I don't do this anymore, but uh, B vitamins, you could see uh, the influence of the color, this kind of artificial yellowing or something that would be present in the, um, the urine. Well, I think that the speed at which that manifests is an interesting biomarker for the functionality of the epithelial cells. So if you give those B vitamins to older, more diseased people, um, the onset um, to which you visibly see that in urine takes a lot longer and it's not as dramatic as if you give it to a young, healthy person, uh, they'll be able to manifest that more quickly and also be able to make urine more fat, uh, more quickly. So a child given a, a cup of water, if you're a parent pretty soon after that, you, you don't want to give your kid a drink in the car because they're going to have to stop and, and, and pee in a little bit of time. Um, older people can drink that water and they, they don't, um, they don't have that same kind of manifestation. So it's the, it, 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 I share that because the, our biological functionality is something that I don't think we pay enough attention to. And it becomes, I think those are also key biological indicators for how healthy we are, how quickly you make urine, how fast you can see the coloration, uh, change, uh, in your, your, your urine once you consume something and also, um, you know, just the, the role of the microbiome and helping to enhance human beings. All these things are, are, uh, er- represent areas that I think um, deserve and warrant uh, considerable uh, study and uh, uh, consideration to, to help uh, humans optimize their health and, and really optimize their, their, uh, their lives. Yeah, I mean, I love it. Yeah, I mean- it's incredible how many little things, Sean, you've you've developed or little indicators or insights into human health that you've observed empirically through through your treatment and through your research. And I'm just contrasting it in my mind with 
you know, the average doctor, um, the, the average uh, maybe family physician who is very much in a pharmaceutical pill-based paradigm and his or her only kind of parameter or insight into the, your health is, is, is perhaps total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and it just makes me think of how far away um, from the cutting edge someone like you that that the mass, the majority of physicians are are residing. Uh, the point of the yellowing of fat is very interesting, and and I have a good friend here in Albury, New South Wales, who's a regenerative farmer, Jake Wolke, and he has at various times Jersey cattle, which is di- which is dairy beef essentially, and he's using them as part of a breeding program for uh, a very interesting breed of African cattle called Nguni. But basically, when he butchers up one of these Jersey cows, they have a very, very distinct characteristic uh, yellow fat. And, and the beef tastes amazing. I haven't personally noticed any, any greening of my urine after eating it, but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely have to, have to look out for that. Um, but yes, and also consuming liver particularly, which is very rich in B, B vitamins, I have noticed um, yellowing um, of the urine. So, so that's a fascinating. Uh, oh yeah, well, that's great because that's where I first saw my green urine was really uh, more enhanced following <clears throat> uh, the consumption of uh, of liver. And I don't know how you consume your liver, but I consume mine uh, in a raw state. And, uh, I think there, there is some risk to eating raw meat, but there's also some benefits. I think probably, you know, for much of our existence ancestrally, we wouldn't have been cooking. We, before the, the discovery of fire, we would have been, um, eating, uh, eating raw meat, but, uh, you know, there, the, 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 the cooking nature of meat denatures some of those, um, some of those molecules. So I think, uh, liver is, you know, when I consume it in raw form, um, uh, uh, when I was previously cooking it, I didn't see the green urine, but now eating it in raw form, it must be something, you know, the molecules and nutrients in it uh, become denatured or destroyed through the heating process. So um, I, I consume my, my liver raw. Yeah. Th- and th- there is definitely, um, I guess, a feeling that you get when you eat raw liver and again, I don't condone donut, and I don't suggest anyone source their liver from anything other than the highest quality fresh source. But there is a feeling that you get when you're eating uh, un- uncooked liver, uh, and it is an amazing feeling of a rush of, of wellness and, and health. And I think it's because of the bioavailability of basically everything your hum- your body needs to to function optimally. And um, before I let you go, Sean, I really want to get your opinion on on your diet because you're you have a very unique eating regime and feasting and fasting regime um, that is incredibly, I guess, foreign to to the overwhelming majority of people. So, can you explain what you do? What is your your normal routine, and what is the rationale and the effectiveness of it in terms of keeping you free of visceral fat? Yeah. So really great question. And um, it is, I think, unique. I I don't know anybody else who promotes this, but I I do, um, um, as part of my strategies to to help biologically optimize my clients, advocate very strongly for fasting, which is something we haven't talked about. But I'll just simply say that defense of fasting is is because of autophagy and the the healing nature 
and um, optimizing nature that op, uh, autophagy brings to human physiology uh, on every uh, single cell uh, in the human body benefits from autophagy. So fasting is something that I recommend, but important to fasting, <clears throat> and a lot of people are hesitant about fasting, particularly if they're in their 50s and 60s, because they think uh, they they uh, fear that uh, fasting is going to contribute to sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass. But uh, when you fast, uh, you um, you actually preserve muscle mass. But it's important um, to follow one particular principle, and that is uh, recovery. So I call that feasting. So ancestrally, we would have caught mega mega uh, fauna. We would have caught some large animal. Uh, bison or something, <clears throat> and we wouldn't have just had a steak. We would have eaten that animal nonstop, you know, for the next probably 24 uh, to 48 hours to consume it in its um, ideal state. Um, I, I can't imagine any uh, 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 human in the past letting an animal rot and then waiting till it's, it's, it's putrescine and um, uh, other molecules are, are causing that animal to, to not be tasty anymore. We would have eaten a lot. So as a consequence of that, we would have had trained our stomachs to engorge on a huge amount of meat. So there would have been adaptation for uh, large amounts of meat. And in and, and present today and 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 certain tribes that are kind of more of a meat nature. I think the Hutza are, are examples of that. They catch something, they have these big stomachs absorbed where they eat a lot of meat is um, I think a, an example today that that still endures, but I get my clients to stretch their stomachs out. And so I, I like to give the example. It's almost like you become one of those experts in a hot dog eating contest where you can eat a huge amount of hot dogs only this time I'm going to have you eating processed hot dog meat. I'm going to have you eating beautiful golden fat, uh, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Stretch out your stomach so that your capacity for absorbing uh, meat is enhanced relative to others and you will recover. And why that's important is you have to replace, and I don't like SECO, calories in, calories out, so I'll simply say you have to replace the lost food that you didn't eat for your preceding period of time for which you fasted. So, for instance, if you fasted for four days and you normally eat um, three pounds of meat in those uh, those four days, that's 12 pounds of meat that you're going to have to recover. So you're going to need to recover, uh, let's say, for the next four days uh, when you are feasting. You're, you're going to be eating um, uh, 12 pounds of meat ordinarily and then an additional 12 pounds on top of that. So we're now talking about for the next four days, six, day, six pounds of meat that you're going to have to consume. And that well exceeds the capacity of the average human being. So um, I encourage and enjoin my, exhort my clients to, to begin a practice, a diligent practice of trying to stretch their stomachs out to be able to eat this meat, um, to not only uh, secure immediate health, but also to stave off this huge scourge that is sarcopenia. So the average 20-year-old can absorb a lot more protein 
in their gastrointestinal tract relative to the average 60-year-old. So um, the capacity to uh, place within your gastrointestinal tract uh, more protein uh, is, is an, I think, an important strategy to help absorb uh, and get the, the, the protein loss that is going to be facing you. So, yeah, I call it feast and fasting. Um, that that my client, I get my clients to do that, and it uh, pr- it's an interesting contrast to the bariatric patient population now that has that capacity and have stretched their stomachs to the point that they can sit down and eat two to three pizzas or a one to two gallons of ice cream in one sitting. So they have stretched their stomachs out and to the point that they need gastric bypass where we go in and shrink those stomachs um, only because they've never been educated and exhorted along the way to stretch those stomachs out with good, healthy meat. And I wonder what would happen to those same bariatric patients if we could take them instead of stapling their stomachs closed and we got them to put in that large uh, stomach good, healthy, golden fat meat uh, whether um, they would avert and avoid having to have, uh, you know, a bariatric surgeries and staplings and all these crazy surgical procedures, uh, simply from filling that in large capacity with good healthy meat. Yeah, it's the it's yeah. the process of cutting out a, a an anatomically normal stomach because of a lifetime of of eating food that or food products that are incompatible with normal human physiology um, to me is, yeah, what, another one of the puzzling puzzling and frustrating and uh, aspects of, of modern medicine and, and modern nutrition. And, I mean, having having been a carnivore for um, my own, myself for 12 months and still mostly eating still predominantly, eating predominantly. Uh, meat, you you can very quickly, you, you your body adapts to, periods of, of eating a lot, lot, lot of meat. And then it will, it will shrink down and you can go very, very long periods without, without eating and not feeling um, consciously hungry or, or having any kind of hunger, hunger pain or, or having mood influenced by, by hunger or, or satiety signals. So um, yeah, very much in favor um, for people who are, are willing to try that. I think it's the health benefits are, are, are enormous. And do you have Could I any say, uh, one, uh, what, Yeah, I was going to say one other thing about um, that that is different about the way I eat and the consumption of meat that I think is important is um, I have noticed that I feel significantly better if I eat meat with concurrently fermented vegetables, fermented foods. So it has become a staple of mine to have my clients chew concomitantly at the same time. They put a piece of meat into their mouth. They put a small piece of fermented food in. So maybe some a small portion, a strand of uh, of uh, kimchi uh, or sauerkraut or um, fermented beets or kefir or you know blue cheese, and they chew that meat with that ferment. And the benefit to that is not so much from a nutritional standpoint, like there's you know, some nutritional value to the kimchi, but rather uh, um, the microbial value. So the contribution of masticating meat together with these microbes introduces a whole new way of eating 
lost on the average individual, where good beneficial microbes are incorporated within the oral pharynx into that masticated mass of food that you're chewing in your mouth before they're swallowed into your gastrointestinal tract, which helps set the correct course of action for digestion and optimizing your digestive process. And the absence of that kind of process means that you have now exposed yourself to what other, um, limited yourself, I should say, to whatever uh, microbes you have within your mouth. And for the average person, it's a slurry of just pathogenic bad microbes, bad breath, this thick tongue. And if you're listening today, go to your mirror and look at the, the back of your tongue and your tongue to see if you have a biofilm of probably bad microbes growing on your tongue, which you, when you eat a piece of meat, if you're a carnivore and you're not eating this way, or you're, you're vegan and you're, you're not eating this way, uh, you're, you're, you're introducing all these bad microbes into your, into your masticated food and swallowing it, setting just the opposite course of action for harmful digestive or certainly suboptimal digestive processes. So, in the past, we would have had these beautiful oral pharyngeal mouths that had never been exposed to processed foods, had only been exposed to beautiful, you know, microbes making contributions and living in resonance within our gingiva, our teeth, our tongues, our oral pharynxes, which would have helped to drive us in the direction of optimizing human nature, of which we have so significantly departed. So, the end, uh, immediate result, what I have noticed in myself and clients who do that is that they're able to consume a lot more meat and feel better as a consequence. I think if you're a serious hot dog eating contestant, if you took the time to add a little bit of ferment, ferment, fermented foods with it, you'd go to a whole new level and you could, you, you'd feel better and you could eat more. So I can eat substantially more meat when I incorporate a little bit of fermented foods. And that also <clears throat> would include um, uh, uh, natural non-chlorinated water infused with a little bit of organic probiotic apple cider vinegar, getting those uh, microbes from the apple cider vinegar into uh, to help me chew and, and eat that meat. That's what I'm sipping on rather, rather than regular water. Mm. And then... Uh, fermented dairies and blue cheeses also. So you want don't want to just have a single jar of kimchi. You don't want a, a piece of just blue cheese. You want blue cheese. You want sour cream. You want uh, fermented sauerkraut. You want fermented carrots. You want fermented ginger. You want fermented uh, kimchi. You want kvass. You want fermented beets. A variety of these different things like little teeny tiny garnishes added to your masticated food. Swan, you'll feel significantly better and uh, it will help you to uh, secure uh, real, true, biolog biologically optimizing health. Yeah, well, I've definitely yeah. noticed that pairing acidic foods with when eating meat has, or acidic uh, liquids really, really helps that digestion. And often I've been recently using organic apple cider vinegar mixed in with, with water. Uh, but, I've, but at times it's, it's been lemon or lime juice. And, uh, or sometimes there's been garnishes with, uh, that contain red wine vinegar. And I feel like that, that ingesting them in between the, the bites of, of meat really aids in digestion, but I will definitely have to try the actual 
the co-mastication of, of of the the microbridge vegetable matter in in with the the meat. And look, I I think that the best form of of inducing or or eating vegetable matter should be fermented. I, I'm I'm not a fan of eating raw or, or un, uncooked or unprepared vegetables because it's my opinion that in, in our evolutionary past. Uh, uh, our ancestors would have always transformed, prepared, or somehow deactivated plant toxins through various uh, processes, rather than just grabbing the leaf from um, from the ground and, and shoving it in their mouth. And and if if, if if listeners want to listen to my uh, talk, my interview with Anthony Chafee, he he gives us a good uh, background and very very in depth explanation about why grabbing every random leaf in the forest would not have been a uh, a good idea and still isn't. Yeah, Dr. Chafee is uh, awesome. Uh, he's he's a, a, a source of uh, knowledge and, and great influence within this particular space. And uh, I, I too, uh, agree. I would never eat any vegetables or fruit uh, that have not been fermented. And I, I know that is um, the purest within the carnivore community uh, probably wouldn't eat fermented um, fermented vegetables or even fermented foods, but it's their concern for the lectins and um, the oxalates and these other plant toxins that uh, plant defenses that are present within them. And it's not like you're you're going to eat a a bowl of broccoli and 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 die, you know, from one single bowl of broccoli. But it's the insidious contribution of these uh, plant toxins and defenses over a period of time that has a health depriving characteristic or quality to them that ends up causing more harm. But um, in, from studies, we see where fermentation is present. And of course, it's, it is uh, dependent upon the length of fermentation. You can't just achieve this in a one hour fermentation. Yeah. But at a fermentation, we see the elimination of these plant toxins to, um, to uh, for me to decide to go ahead and incorporate this, and then <clears throat> then I see the significant value when I add them. Not so much from a nutritional standpoint, <clears throat> but because of the mi- microbes that are present within it. And uh, there are some carnivores that eat fruit and honey. Um, I and I don't uh, s- subscribe to that. One of the things that I noticed when I went on a podcast to somebody that advocates that that I decided, you know, they challenged me to be scientific. It's actually Dr. Saladino, who I've great admirer of. He challenged me to give it a try. And so twice I tried nitric oxide, I mean, uh, 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 honey, consumption of honey. And in both cases, my visible pulses that I spoke about that I love so much disappeared. I mean, they just went away. And I started studying uh, and saw that carbohydrates inhibit the production of nitric oxide through uh, nitric oxide synthase. So I, yeah, I'm just not a believer in uh, eating honey. It it might be possible to consume honey that's been fermented to reduce the carbohydrates. That's a possibility, Um, but uh, I haven't uh, explored that. But I do consume fruit if it's been adequately fermented. And my, my metric that I follow on that is to make sure it is no longer sweet tasting. It has the distinct and profound uh, quality of tang that is present when carbohydrates have been fermented. And so I love fermented f- fruit, but I don't eat fresh fruit. Mm. 
Yeah, a couple points. I yeah, couple. agree, Sean. I don't advocate for large amounts of consumption of honey. I personally find that I don't feel good if I've eaten a little bit of honey and so commonly a little bit of honey turns into a lot of honey and it's it, it, it simply doesn't make me feel good or, or any way health optimized. So uh, I'm going to agree with you and disagree with uh, Dr. Saladino about uh, uh, eating honey. And I think if anyone's got visceral fat, um, they shouldn't be be eating eating honey. On the point of the microbial co-ingestion of meat, I'm, I'm reminded of a story from, I believe it was the American West and one of the native uh, American tribes. And after they killed a a bison, I believe they they would have a uh, they would cut out a section of intestine, still filled with grass. And one would there's a story about one putting the, the end of of the bison of the intestine in one mouth, and the other guy has it in the the other mouth. And they're both eating like this towards the uh, towards the middle, and they they're ingesting all that fermented, uh, fermented. grass and whatever had been in in the gut of of the animal they just killed. So. So yeah, um, the, the there's definitely some benefit um, to having or ingesting uh, amounts of bacteria to kind kind of aid in in digestion. And the other point that you re- that you really made that I want to add to about uh, the cumulative uh, harm of of the plant toxins is adding to the cumulative harm of visceral fat, and and that's circling all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. And the point that I want to reemphasize, because I think that it's so important for the listener, is it's not only the presence of that visceral fat, but the duration that you have it. And and if you think about a curve, like that area under the curve is, I guess maybe maybe a risk. But um, I, can, I I'm thinking of a lot of vegetarian and maybe vegans in today's day and age, and not only are they having this plant accumulative plant toxicity because they're eating so much vegetable matter that is often uh, not always fermented and they're having the oxalate loading, they're having the lectin loading, the phytates, but they're also eating a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of fruit and a lot of sugar. So they're having those twin evils of visceral fat and plant toxins. And then, you you know, you, there's no wonder why they're, they're suffering and they have the, the full gamut of, of symptoms and they they have poor digestion and, and they look haggard and they're, they're nutrient deficient. So, um, yeah, that's a very yeah. That's a good point. I, I I've uh, scanned a few vegans um, and have noticed, or vegetarians, that they have a, a large amount of visceral fat, and um, uh, on those occasions, they, they're always surprised. They don't think they will, and um, fortunately, they all decided to start adding back in meat when they saw that because they were deluded into thinking that they were really healthy, but. It's interesting to me that um, present within the vegan community is appears to be um, a, a tolerance of um, a change it for the harm. You know, they they start looking bad and performing bad, and and uh, they seem to uh, accept that. And initially, everybody feels better, but it's and the, when they go vegan because it's they've eliminated most a lot of times. Uh, eating processed foods, so that they're they're probably not eating the pastries and things like that. Um, so they they derive some benefit to to that, and they may you know purpose to to exercise more. And so there is some benefit, but long term, decades, you know, uh, 10, 20 years down the road, um, that is slowly abated, and uh, now now they've uh, 
kind of settled into just a suboptimal existence and putting up with that, it yeah, it's a very a very harm very harmful uh, I think lifestyle that a lot of people get into when they they eliminate this important source of fat. Now, having said that, I I am I marvel at this one guy named Frank Madrano who's on Instagram and he appears to be really healthy and he. Um, also functionally is very healthy because he does these intense calisthenics and Frank is older than I am. He's 63. Uh, but one of the, um, I think ways he's able to overcome and he is, I think, um, mostly vegan, uh, he's able to, uh, endure that is I don't think he's been vegan as long as some of the people have been for decades and two high intensity, um, exercise that he does in these calisthenics. Um, people that do maximally intense exercise like calisthenics and sprinting have um, dramatic resolution of visceral fat. So I think it's in large part how Frank exercises and rather than how he's eating that allows for that. But he's he's a kind of an exception. And, and, I, and I like to look at exceptions because there's other ways to learn. And so he, I think, provides an interesting example of how to highlight the importance of uh, maximum intensity exercise as opposed to endurance exercise. The vast majority of vegans aren't going to be looking like, like that gentleman. And um, your sample where, where you MRI scanned the vegans is probably more, more representative, um, for, especially for those who have done a long-term vegan diet, and that's going to be more revealing of visceral fat. The, the point I wanted to make as well is that it, this is just a, a simple problem of uh, it's a simple equation because if you're removing animal meat and animal organs, which are such a good source of protein and fat, you're necessar- necessarily going to make that up with inferior source of uh, energy, which is carbohydrates and less bioavailable uh, protein, as well as inferior plant oils, which are rich in linoleic acid and going to drive this whole metabolic uh, syndrome and drive the development of uh, visceral fat. So um, I'm I'm mindful of your time, Sean, and and I'm really, really grateful for all the wisdom that you've shared. Uh, Do you have any final closing thoughts that you want to um, basically uh, share with us? Sure. Just just that, um, you know, my own example, what has happened to me and and my clients, I hope is uh, provides some uh, credibility to try to encourage your audience to really uh, embrace the optimizing their health. And, and if they benefit from just some dietary changes to consider how much more um, uh, am- amplifying and a beneficial living a healthy, healthy life really is and brings to your, to your quality of life. And to try to make that as uh, attractive of a, uh, uh, pursuit as I can possibly make it. So um, I'll just end by saying thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. I wish your your podcast all the best and everybody in the audience uh, to uh, optimize their health and their life. And if anybody is interested in uh, learning more about me, they can check me out on my social media uh, presence, which again is at Dr. Sean O'Meara. I also have a website, www. Uh, D-R-S-E-A-N-O-M-A-R-A.com. That's drshawnamera.com. And uh, yeah, I uh, really enjoy this particular space and uh, good luck to you and your medical career and stamp out disease. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.